Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we go a wassailing in Asheville, North Carolina. It's kind of like Christmas caroling with a kick. Yeah, as you heard in the last song, we did ask for alcohol several times. <laughs> okay. Do you want alcohol? It's not like. You guys have some cups. I've yeah. seen it. Kentucky's Minnie Atkins has had a long career as a folk artist. It all began with the pocket knife. And I loved whittling as a child. And I made toys and bow and arrows and little pop-off whistles and all kinds of stuff to play with. And family recipes bring generations together. But what happens when you've got grandma's potato candy recipe and it doesn't have exact measurements? People are like, no, it doesn't taste that good. I was like, no, something's not right. Like, I got to get this right. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Season's greetings. It's that time of year when brave souls gather together and roam the streets to regale people with songs and good cheer. In Asheville, North Carolina, one group of friends has been doing this for the last few years. But they're not your typical Christmas carolers. Instead, they're taking part in an older and less common English tradition called wassailing. The group decided to learn about wassailing as a way to connect to their roots. And in the process, they've redefined this holiday tradition for themselves and their community. Folkways reporter Rebecca Williams has this story. On a cold December night in Asheville, North Carolina, a group of about 20 people are gathering on a stranger's front porch. Some of them have been coming together for the past decade to celebrate the holidays build community, and most important, wassail. One of the wassailers knocks on the door. We're wassailers, and we would like to sing you songs. I'd be delighted. Lily, white lily, oh lily, white pin, please to come down and let us come in. Sarah Lynch Thomason leads the Asheville group. At 36 years old, Sarah wears her dark hair short on one side and long on the other. Tonight, she sports a bright red scarf and a cluster of bells that ring when she walks. She explains that wassailing is a centuries-old tradition with English roots. The term wassail comes from an Anglo-Saxon phrase that meant good health, Um, so it was a toast to good health. So wassail itself was a drink usually made from ale and uh, cooked apples and a lot of spices that would be served in households often again around Twelfth Night or Christmas time or New Year's and coincided with a tradition uh, in the Middle Ages of working class folk, peasants going to the homes of the wealthy and having this customary charitable exchange where the, um, the working people are singing to and blessing the wealthy master and mistress of the house and in exchange, they're being gifted food, they're being gifted cider and wassail, and they're being uh, often gifted money as well. Tonight's wassailers don't ask for money, but after singing at a house decorated with bright holiday lights, they do ask for another gift. Yeah, as you heard in the last song, we did ask for alcohol several times. <laughs> okay. Do you want alcohol? Whistling isn't your typical round of Christmas caroling. It's more mischievous. And that's something that the Asheville group takes very seriously. This was a really fun and rowdy tradition, and it eventually got displaced by caroling in the Victorian era. You know, it was considered kind of too rambunctious um, by the emerging culture. And so the spirit of what we're trying to return to is that that kind of raucous, fun feeling um, of these strangers with a party showing up at your door. In fact, wassailing developed such a bad reputation for public drunkenness, it was banned by the Puritans in England and was highly discouraged by religious leaders who settled in the U.S., But recently, the tradition has had a renaissance in both England and America. One wassailer, Leela Weinstein, has been with the group 
for about five years. She explains what draws her to this tradition. I love the old songs. I love ballads. I love all the medieval imagery um, and then just the camaraderie of singing together and, you know, lighting up the night with some song. For Caleb Magoon, tonight is an excuse for a really good time. And it's a way of connecting to others. It's just getting together with people every year that you may not see otherwise, you know, and having a fun time being silly. But members of the Asheville group aren't just drawn to wassailing because of the rowdy good time and the sense of community. For participants like Aaron Gann Clark, it's also a way to connect with the traditions of their ancestors. I think that for me, like I was raised in a Catholic faith, and so I always knew about Christmas caroling, but I feel like these songs that are older are connecting me to my well ancestors and like more ancient roots, and I just dig it. It feels good in my body. Most of the wassailers here in Asheville are white, and wassailing seems to help them connect to their ancestral traditions and ethnic identity. For Sarah and many of her white peers, they feel disconnected from a sense of ethnic identity. And Sarah says that here in the U.S., that's by design. There's been uh, a long and very purposeful project of making people white here, of having people forget their ancestral identities and uh, becoming white as a way to create racial hierarchies and reinforce white supremacy. When you came off the boat, <laughs> you know, whatever period, there was a project here of, of making you become white and forget your ancestral languages and traditions. And so today, white folks in this country are experiencing a lot of grief and have a lot of yearning for ancestral practices. Sarah has experienced this grief of ethnic ambiguity firsthand. And when she was in her mid-20s, she decided to learn about the traditions of her ancestors. In my case, I have ancestors from England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Scandinavia, kind of all over the place. And there's several hundred years of separation from any of the traditions from those places. So, you know, I've sought out and learned from other people, English folk songs, Scottish ballads, Sarah says that connecting with these English and Scottish folk songs has had a big impact. And there's something really powerful to me about speaking words and singing songs, holding those vibrations, those words, um, those forms of knowledge in my body, and knowing that people in my ancestry also sang these songs and held these words. The boys but it's not always easy to learn songs and rituals that haven't been passed down from generation to generation. There are challenges to singing a 700-year-old song. During rehearsal, the wassailing group struggles with Latin pronunciations. Servire, like, I'm sure this is wrong. Let us servire, I'm changing it as I do it. Let us servire cantico. Let us servire cantico. That's some Latin English right there. It's messy trying to reconfigure a 15th century English tradition for 21st century Asheville. But Sarah says that it's important that white folks make the effort to learn about their ethnic identities and the practices of their ancestors. When we aren't able to connect to those practices, we end up appropriating and attaching to other cultures, indigenous cultures and African-American cultures. And it's really important to understand that in indigenous history here and in African-American history, song and dance traditions and many spiritual traditions were illegal for a very, very long time. We have to think about how painful that is then for, for white folks to then be trying to borrow or utilize those traditions without much context for them when we, as white people, actually have those traditions in our ancestry that we can be seeking out in a healthier way. Back on the porch, as the group finishes singing, one of the people in the house returns with a bottle of wine. And one of the wassailers, Rochelle, slips on a costume that looks like it's made out of red and blue rags. She's wearing a wreath on her head that's wrapped in fake ivy with battery-operated candles on top. 
assure Q that we're no longer in the Middle Ages. The spirit of the new year emerges from behind the singers and dances up to the owners of the house to make a toast. I just think we so badly need community, and there are so many ways that our current culture divides us from each other and isolates us from each other. And when you get people together to sing together, something really, really powerful happens for us, and it happens in our bones. It happens at like this molecular level, and we need it. And so um, to create that with a group of people and then bring that as a gift to others... Um, to say, hey, we are, even if you're feeling isolated in your home or um, isolated in your community, we show up and we sing to you. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful gift. We have traveled many miles over hedges and stiles. For Inside Appalachia, this is Rebecca Williams in Asheville, North Carolina. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. Maybe this is a tradition you'd like to pick up? For the words to some of the Wasseling songs, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Another folk tradition in the region begins with a simple piece of wood. Whittling is so easy that practically anybody can do it. But Minneapolis has elevated this unpretentious practice to the level of art. In fact, some people have even described the 89-year-old Kentucky woodcarver as the matriarch of Appalachian folk art. But Atkins says she's just a whittler. Randy Yoey sat down with Minnie Atkins to talk with her about her craft. Born in the midst of the Great Depression, Minnie grew up a farm girl. Her father also ran a sawmill and dug coal out of a tunnel on the nearby hillside. For extra money, he made axe handles and homemade sleds. Minnie says there was a lot of whittling to it. When her father saw she was intrigued with a mostly young boy's pastime, he gave his daughter a pocket knife. That helped begin a prelude to folk art history. And I loved whittling as a child. And I made toys for myself. I made slingshots and, and bow and arrows and, and little pop-off whistles and all kinds of stuff to play with. Minnie's whittling creativity expanded as she grew up, but she went back to the slingshot and saw something more hidden within the Y-shaped branch. Well, I was making a slingshot, and you know how the prongs goes like that and the handle like that? And I thought, well, if that had a tail and a head on it, that could be a rooster with a pair of legs. And I tried it, and it turned out good. And from then on, I kept making roosters. Minnie continued to whittle her roosters, soon to be painted blue and become her signature piece, along with various birds and other hand-sized creatures. She would give the pieces away or sell them for a meager price. Her avocation graduated to something more when she and her husband Garland took some of her carved creations to a mecca of Appalachian folk art, the gallery at Moorhead State University. If I'd sold about three pieces, a cow and a horse and something else for... $35, and he wrote it out on a little tablet sheet and sent it to me. And uh, me and Garland would go down there to the art department, and then you could drive right up there by it. And when we'd drive in, the whole bunch of workers would come out, and we'd set our stuff on the hood of the truck, and they'd buy everything we took, and they'd hurry out there to see which one could get there first. 
Soon after, a newfound art vendor friend would come to Minnie's Elliott County, Kentucky home once a month and pick up what she and Garland had made. She says he'd take it all down south and sell it to art galleries and such. When Minnie's work was featured in a big coffee table book called Appalachian Artist of the Southern Mountains, avocation turned into vocation, and a star was born. And after that book come out, people began to hunt for me and Garland from all over the country. Minnie and Garland lived in one of the poorest counties in eastern Kentucky. Elliott County had no major highway, not one railroad track, not even a stoplight. She took it upon herself to get some of her friends and neighbors whittling and painting. When Garland was alive and stuff, Randy, and you remember coming down here, uh, we had 15 folk artists uh, making folk art and uh, making a living at it. They're all gone but me and and Timmy Lewis up here and Jimmy Lewis. They, they're not old as I, you know, ain't been at it as long as I have, but they've got a reputation with their folk art. What does Russian ballet music have to do with this Appalachian tale? In 1992, at Kentucky's Center College, a multicultural hub, Soviet ballet dancer Mikhail Baryshnikov was giving master classes and performing at Center's Norton Center for the Arts. Minnie was invited that celebratory weekend to receive the first Norton Center Award for Achievement in the Arts in Kentucky. Center College Communications Director, Musician, and Children's Book Author Mike Norris was asked to squire Minnie Atkins around for the event. Because they knew we spoke the same language, that is, Eastern Kentuckian. And uh, when when I met Minnie, if you've ever had that experience, within about five minutes, I felt like I'd known her all my life. And she told me later she felt the same way about me. We just really connected. And Minnie, uh, I noticed immediately she's probably the most generous person I ever met. And she was wearing these little uh, wooden uh, carved animals she had made, foxes, bears. She had brought a bunch of them with her. And somebody would praise one. And she'd say, well, here, honey, just take it with you. And she'd take it off of her neck and give it to him. Mike says Minnie gave him a whittled blue guitar, about 12 inches tall, since she had heard he played guitar. As a thanks, Mike sent her a cassette tape that he had recorded with the Raggedy Robin string band. Got a bright blue rooster and a three-legged hog, wore out tractor and a no-count dog. She called me up about a week later and she said, well, I wish you hadn't given me that tape. And I said, well, why? And she said, it's got that song on it about the bright blue rooster and I can't quit thinking about it and it's aggravating. And I said, well, just lay down and rest. Maybe you'll feel better when you get up. Mike says Minnie did not rest but went back to work. And a week later, he got a big box in the mail. There was this beautiful 14-inch tall blue rooster that she had carved with this beautiful plumed tail just giving it to me out of the goodness of her heart, maybe to get it out of her head. And I set it up on my mantle, and then I couldn't quit thinking about it every time I'd walk by it. And about a week later, I called her back, and I said, many of this song's got the bright blue rooster, the three-legged hog, the wore-out tractor, the no-count dog. If you'd carve all the figures in the book, I believe we could make a children's book. And she didn't say yay or nay, but another week went by, and I got a box, and it had a three-legged hog in it. And the third week came, and I got a box with a, a with a wore-out tractor, uh, worn out, we would say in English class. And uh, the fourth week, I got a bigger box, and it had two dogs in it. And she had a little note in there, and she said, you decide which one's the most no-count. So that got us started. With Mike writing and Minnie illustrating, the pair is now working on their fifth children's book, Taking the collaboration a major step further, Mike and Minnie have constructed an art gallery display with hundreds of carvings and the stories with them to bring 30 years' worth of their books to a new life. It was kind of like that old program that used to be on TV in the 50s called This Is Your Life. Uh, it was kind of a tour of our creative life, and uh, it, it's something to be remembered. And we, we hope it's going to continue to travel. There's interest from other museums as well. Minnie's artistic endeavors have branched into other mediums, 
painting, ceramics, quilting, and hand-blown glass, all decorated with her animal and human designs. Her works sell in the hundreds and thousands of dollars. Minnie's public recognition has come in landslides. Numerous distinguished American art awards, collegiate certificates of merit, an honorary doctorate, and the prestigious Kentucky Governor's Artist Award for her contribution to art and artist. Minnie says her faith teaches her that humility and helping others are the true rewards. She says she doesn't understand what matriarch of Appalachian folk art really means, but maybe she does. What does a matriarch mean? <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, lifted up like I'm something because I'm not. The Bible teaches us our righteousness is filthy rags, so that don't... Don't say a lot for us, does it? When we get to thinking we're goody two-shoes, I feel like I just love to help somebody that wants to help their self. Mike says simply that nobody has done it longer, done it more, and done it better than Minnie Atkins. In March, she'll be 90 years old, and she has not slowed down a whit. She works six days a week, and she's got as much enthusiasm as she ever had. And many, just by the volume and the quality of her work, just uh, rises uh, above the crowd. She, she's she been called the most important female woodcarver in America, and I don't know whether I'd even put female in front of that or not. Right next to Minnie's whittling chair sits a well-worn, dogged-eared, placemark-filled Bible. She says that book is her life's manual for living. And how long might that life's manual include whittling? Till they put me underground. <laughs> if I'm able, I, I've been awful blessed. I just can't thank the good Lord enough for his blessings. That Bible, uh, Marthy Sluss and my sister Evelyn and... and Somebody else bought me that Bible when I was 50 years old. And you see, I've really worked with it. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Randy Yoey in Elliott County, Kentucky. Coming up, a candy maker in West Virginia's eastern panhandle tries to reconstruct a beloved but mysterious family recipe. People are like, no, it doesn't taste that good. I was like, no, something's not right. Like, I got to get this right. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. I recently received some family heirlooms, including what I consider the crown jewel my mother's wooden box of handwritten family recipes. I know this is the case for a lot of other mountain families too. Treasured family recipes are passed down to younger generations. Sometimes they come on note cards or show up in loose leaf cookbooks. These recipes can be a way to connect with the past, but not all of them use exact measurements. So how do you know you're getting the mix right, especially if you've never tried it? For Brenda Sandoval in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, an old family recipe involves some trial and error and an assist from a cousin. Capri Cafaro has more. Brenda Sandoval has been making her grandmother's potato candy recipe for years. Today, she's peeling just one potato to make her next batch. This is going to be a little batch today. Brenda is a striking woman with long dreadlocks and intricate tattoos adorning her arms. She tells me about the day she discovered her grandmother's potato candy recipe. 
I came across the recipe and some recipe books my aunt had given me that were my grandmother's that she had been holding on to. I found this recipe. It was her handwriting on a piece of paper, and it was pea period candy. So the two pea ingredients were the potato and the peanut butter and the confectionate sugar, but she had a side note of things that she added, which were salt, milk, and vanilla. Like many handwritten recipes, Brenda's family potato candy recipe did not use units like cups or teaspoons. The dash was the vanilla, the pinch was the salt, and the milk was labeled as, I want to say it was four splashes is how she had it. Brenda was intrigued. She wanted to see if she could recreate the recipe. Of course, the first couple of times I'm making it, I'm just literally with the milk jug, just like splashing it over it and it, it didn't work. But Brenda had never eaten her grandmother's potato candy, so she wasn't sure what it was supposed to taste like. Family members who tried those early batches said it didn't taste quite right. Something was missing. It just did not. People were like, no, it doesn't taste that good. I was like, no, something's not right. Like, I got to get this right. So Brenda set out on a mission to make her grandmother's potato candy recipe taste like the real deal. And getting it right wasn't easy. Okay. Brenda was chasing a taste memory. Eventually, she enlisted a family member in the pursuit. As you're tasting it, you're trying to match it to what, like, grandma's was back when you were little and everyone goes over to grandma's on Christmas Eve. That's Valerie Bovey. She's Brenda's cousin. And unlike Brenda, Valerie actually tasted her grandmother's potato candy. She remembers how it tasted when she ate it on Christmas Eve. That's the flavor you got to try to find, <laughs> which is hard to explain exactly what that flavor is, but it's, it's definitely that grandma's house Christmas Eve flavor. <laughs> Brenda and Valerie worked together closely, Valerie tasting each batch and Brenda adjusting the ingredients based on Valerie's feedback. She trusts me that I know what it should taste like, and, like, I let her know when it is good, and she's just, like, really happy that, you know, she's accomplished that same taste. Their collaboration worked. Brenda's determination and Valerie's taste memory led to a breakthrough. She was like, no, this, this is right. Whatever you did, keep doing this. Potato candy is a food icon across Appalachia. It became popular during the Great Depression because it was cheap and easy to make. This sugary sweet confection is usually composed of just three inexpensive ingredients, peanut butter, powdered sugar, and of course, potatoes. The candy looks like a reverse pumpkin log with a brown swirl of peanut butter wrapped in the white pasty potato mix. When it's sliced, some people say the pieces look like pinwheels. So when you're starting your potato candy mix, it's almost like you're making homemade mashed potatoes. That's actually what we want to do. But as we add the vanilla, the milk, and the salt, and a little bit of the sugar, we're going to get a real, it almost looks like syrup. I'm assuming it's the, the sugar. Over the years, Brenda has mastered the potato candy recipe. I have a... Just a four-pound bag. Back in the kitchen, she's assembling her ingredients to be mixed. She adds the splash of milk, dash of vanilla, and pinch of salt to the mashed potatoes, and lots and lots of powdered sugar. As I watch the mixture turn into paste, I ask Brenda about the reaction she gets when people eat her potato candy. Most people, the first thing they say is, I remember eating it when my grandmother or my great-grandmother or my aunt, it was always a family member making it, and they could uh, remember the taste. Brenda thinks her potato candy has something special that sets it apart. I think it's the little side note of my grandmother's that makes the difference. That's the side note to add the dash of vanilla, pinch of salt, and the splashes of milk. And it's not just the extra ingredients that make her potato candy different. She brings something more to the process. I like to take my time and think about my grandmother or my ancestors as I'm baking it. And I think maybe that's, it's coming from the heart. It's just very emotional sometimes. It's clear the potato candy is more than just a sweet treat to Brenda. It's about sustaining tradition and holding on to family memories. I want it to go to someone, at least even if they don't make it, just have the recipe. Just pass the recipe down. Like maybe further down, generations down, someone will want to make it. Brenda's cousin Valerie is doing her part 
to keep their family's potato candy tradition going. She wants to keep those taste memories alive for future generations. Because my kids are such fans of it. I want to make sure that I get the recipe down pat so that I can make it with my kids and my now grandchildren. And I just want us to be able to all get together, have good family memories, have fun making it together, and enjoying it together. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Capri Cafaro. Blinko Glass has been a West Virginia institution for more than a century. The company makes everything from stem and tableware to decorative glass figurines. And they do this the traditional way, with hand-carved cherry wood molds. WVPB's Emily Rice took a tour of the Blinko factory in Milton, West Virginia, and has this story. In an era of speed algorithms, and increasing automation, Blinko Glass holds true to its ethos, handmade from sand to hand. James Arnett is the creative director of Blinko Glass. Blinko was unique being handmade, but especially unique still being handmade in 2023. Arnett describes Blinko's glassmaking process as an art, one that includes the careful steps of workers in the shop's dance of molten glass, heat, and classic wooden molds. Glassblowing process is magical, alchemical. Um, it's intense to watch, right? There's seven moving bodies per shop, each one doing a different task that makes the glass uh, from sand to hand, as we call it. In a workshop with so many vital pairs of hands, one pair touches most everything in the shop. The shop's wood mold maker, Daniel Chapman. He's the man where the rubber hits the road, right? So it goes from paper, but it has to go into a mold. Right? Um, that's a cornerstone of our glass blowing process. Like most workers at Blinko Glass, Daniel Chapman just needed a job when he was hired on at 18 years old. You know, nobody came to glass for glass, yeah. um, not here. We all came from other corners of the world or just because we needed a job. And we had the sort of thrill and the privilege of being able to come into this, into this environment and pick up a trade, a craft, um, and an art. Arnett said each mold is a benchmark by which to form the pieces. All pieces start as a blob of molten glass, which is attached to a long, hollow metal pole. The blower blows into the pole, creating a pocket of air in the blob of molten glass. As you can imagine, the glass blowing process is not a quiet one, so please forgive the audio as we make our way onto the hotshot floor. So the thing about the way that wood molds work is that when the blower inflates the glass within the cherry wood mold, which has been soaking and is wet, um, it creates a pocket of steam on the inside of the form of that mold that I say the glass rides, right? So as the blower spins that pipe with that hot unformed mass with the air behind it in that mold, it creates a pocket where the glass doesn't even really touch the edge of the wood. It creates a sort of a negative space around it that allows it to take its form. Uh, our wood molds would burn out really fast if we didn't have that sort of centrifugal technology behind our blowing. Daniel not only conceives of and creates the wooden molds, but keeps everyone's tools in working order. It's really neat to watch Daniel interact with our shop floor um, on, on a daily basis. He will come up to watch uh, to make sure that our new molds are being blown in well, accurately, responsibly. Um, he'll take a look at the, the health of our molds. Uh, he'll take a look at the health of our tools to make sure that they're still effective, they're still clean, they still work to the purpose that they were cut to. Um, and his cumulative wisdom about how glass is blown from the side of working wood um, really informs the way that we do everything on our hotshot floor. Blinko Glass uses its wooden molds differently from other studios, allowing them to soak for years so they can be used over and over again. So this is, it's a legacy. He's making not just sort of the form in which the glass goes, but he's making an artifact every single time um, that has a long life uh, in our hands. 
And it reminds us too that I mean, nothing here goes to waste. Everything that we make, that we use, um, has multiple purposes, has cross purposes, has been reclaimed, refashioned, reformed, or refurbished in some way. Daniel Chapman worked with his mentor, Robert Smith, for about five years before taking over the wood shop. Starts off, I eat patterns down the wall behind you here. Uh, that's stuff we've made down through the years. Uh, come up with something new, either a customer will send in a piece of glass and say, I want this duplicated. So I gotta sketch the whole thing out and make a mold to fit their piece of glass sometimes. Sometimes somebody comes up with a new idea. Sometimes I come up with ideas on my own. And, uh, but you draw it on a paper first, it's uh, a cardboard paper. Cut it out and measure up what size piece of wood you need and, and cut it and start carving. I see Daniel standing in the parking lot with a chainsaw having that the cherry wood trees that we've drug into the back lot back there. Um, he's already got an idea in his head of how big that piece is gonna have to be. And so he takes that chainsaw to that tree and cuts off that, that first bit of it, right? That looks just like a stump. Chapman takes a two-dimensional drawing and creates an outline of the piece with cardboard and uses those dimensions to carve out the negative space for the piece. You stack the pieces up, of course this one is warped towards dried out. But you stack the two pieces up, find your center, draw your center line all the way through, and then these two tabs right there go center to center. You draw it, both pieces, and you start carving. Ever the humble craftsman, Chapman is sure to let Arnett know that he works with dimensions on the patterns lining the walls. Always pattern has got a dimension on there of the size piece of wood that it uh, takes to make it. Chapman said he enjoys the hard work he has put into the shop each day for almost 40 years. I've always kind of enjoyed what I do. It's hard work. But I, I worked uh, other jobs here before I come to the mold shop. Uh, worked a flattener. You're familiar with that. Make sheet glass, like stained glass windows. They don't do that anymore here because you know, the demand for it left us. And I, I walked the flattener for a few years. And I drove truck for a little while. And I started here about 35 years ago making molds. And been doing it ever since. Chapman also said that with the modernization of his craft, even the addition of metal molds instead of wood molds would take away from Blanco's credibility as handmade. It gives more character for one thing. Uh, metal molds, uh, we got to do a process to them. We got to paste them, which is put stuff in, bake them in the oven, put cork sawdust inside to actually give them a wooden surface on the inside. And a wood mold, you use it until it's burn out, and it'll eventually burn out, and you make another one. While the wooden mold may burn out, Chapman said he can create a new one from scratch within days. Metal mold. One thing it's very expensive getting them cast and machined, and you gotta wait two, three months to get the process done. And wood mold, two days I have you a new mold. While Chapman touches most everything in Blinko glass, his actual wood molds are available for sale as well. I do take some of them. I sand them down, all the black off them down, and make them real pretty, and varnish them, and they sell them down to the visitor center. You go down into our visitor center on any given day and there's a half of a mold down there that Daniel Chapman has hand carved and then also hand polished and hand veneered and varnished and brought down there and cured. We keep them up here for a while to make sure that they're nice and clean and beautiful. Um, and it comes out in this really richly patinaed uh, wood uh, because it shows the, the evidence of its using but it, it shows every bit of the evidence of its making too. Um, not just as a usable object, but then also as a decor object, right? So thinking of putting it on display next to the piece that you have completed from that mold is, is a really cool thing. I don't know, it kind of swells your head a little bit sometimes, but I try not to, try not to. I just, I'm just me, ain't nothing special about me. Chapman is a cornerstone of the Blinko Glass Factory and the through line through which all glass moves from sand to hand. 
That was West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Emily Rice. Holidays are full of gatherings and get-togethers, and for a lot of people, card games. West Virginia native Harrison Reichman has developed a new party game called Story Wars, in which players see who can come up with the wildest story. Bill Lynch has more. Harrison, first off, give us a little background about yourself. So I'm from uh, Hurricane and grew up in Putnam County. I've been a Taze Valley Hurricane boy my whole life until I went to college. I uh, went to the University of Virginia, and then right after graduation, I moved out to L.A. But uh, growing up in West Virginia was like a really special part for me. And so like it's a place that I hold dear to my heart. I travel back frequently because I feel like it just rejuvenates who I am and why I love it so much. Uh, talk about Story Wars. How did you get in the uh, the, the game-building business? I got into the game building business because I've been in the entertainment business for 15 years. I am an idea generator. I'm a creator. I'm sometimes resistant to labels. I saw a way to encourage storytelling from anybody by creating a card game. Now that became a new avenue for me because I have been a director and a filmmaker and doing other roles. Okay. So the, the concept, how did you come up with that? Uh, concept came from uh, really a lot of the times that I've spent as a development executive, where I would hear ideas being pitched to me for hours on end. And I'd say, you know, in essence, I probably heard, you know, 12,000 ideas from really talented people. And, you know, anybody's familiar with like looking up a description on Netflix or, or IMDB for something that they want to engage in. And so I just had a moment where I started thinking about mashing up ideas, whether it be like a horror or a rom-com or a drama, and pairing those scenarios or instances or characters in these kind of juxtaposed genres. And, you know, how fun could that be? When I was starting to play test it, I uh, was really incorporating a little bit too much of... Uh, of the writing uh, minutia into the game. To eliminate that, I um, got a lot of feedback from friends and I started figuring out, you know, where could I simplify the game so that it could truly encourage anybody to build a story, even if they're inebriated, because it's a party game at the end of the day. Okay. Speaking of parties and, and inebriated, who should play this? Oh, I think anybody should play it. I, I think your grandparents should play it. Uh, you know, I think anybody anybody can play this. Are we sure uh, about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen great reaction from people and um, seeing people of all ages buy it, which has been fun. I think one of the things that makes this game and games in this genre a little unique is that it gives people a license to say things that they wouldn't normally say. And in terms of storytelling, um, it encourages anybody to be a storyteller. Uh, you know, I've thought about doing either an expansion or, or a full deck that could be more family oriented. But right now, this is for ages 17 plus. And yeah, you're going to find people of all walks of life that, you know, may may not agree or may not love a card in particular. But, you know, that's something that in 550 cards, they can set aside and the fun can still ensue. I think that people that aren't normally inclined to one, play games, two, tell stories, this is a game for them because it's very simple to pick up, doesn't put any um, pressure on the individual that's telling the story. What's on the card is what they have to read. So it's really that simple. They don't have to ad lib or improvise beyond um, what's written in the copy unless, and there is a game mechanic where you play that way, but then everybody has to add lib or else it's not really fair. So what's ahead for you? Uh, what happens next? Uh, what happens next is staying staying in the entertainment sector. Um, going to be launching uh, new games that are going to be under the Writer's Room brand. So I've been uh, slowly playtesting those and keeping that close to the vest. And then I can kind of be a little bit more open with it on social media and continue to engage people. You know, I would definitely want to continue to uh, receive the feedback that I've gotten, um, taken what I've uh, taken, what I've learned from the game manufacturing business, and then continue to apply it to new ideas that excite people. The game is called Story Wars. Harrison, thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Bill. James Fromel is an actor, storyteller, and occasional contributor to Inside Appalachia. 
this week, the four-time West Virginia Liars Contest champion brings us Possum Post-Christmas Parade. It's the first of a three-part story Frome will develop during his apprenticeship with storyteller Bill Lepp. I grew up in a small town called Possum Post, West Virginia. And I remember how every year on December 20th, our Main Street would come alive as it filled with people for a Christmas celebration. There was a parade, there was a bake sale, there was a screening of It's a Wonderful Life at the Old Palace Theater. And as kids, we loved to watch this parade. As we got to be slightly older kids, we actually got to be in the parade. Heading into middle school, my friends Annie, Calvin, and I had made the cut for our middle school's marching band. Now, of all the kids in our school, only those who signed up were allowed to be part of this prestigious group. And only those who signed up late got to play the sousaphone. And this was the instrument Calvin and I were assigned to. And the sousaphone, if you're not familiar with it, it's the largest instrument in the band. And it looks like what you might think a muffler designed by Dr. Seuss would look like. Annie had been assigned to play the piccolo. Now, the leader of the sousaphone section was a kid named Barnaby Barry. And we liked him. I've always had a soft spot for anybody whose name is alliterative. And Barnaby was tall for his age. He was around six foot, but rail thin. He weighed around six pounds less than a sousaphone. We arrived at the band room for our first day of practice, and Barnaby attempted to show us how to approach the sousaphone. He sat us down, he shouted, Observe! And then he set about struggling to put the sousaphone on. He was straining and sweating and swearing. It looked like a boa constrictor attacking a rake, but it was an entertaining 30 minutes for Calvin and I. We didn't know which one of them might win this thing, but our money was on the sousaphone. Finally, he gets the thing on, it's safely crushing all of his bones together, and Barnaby began showing us the fingerings for all the notes. And Calvin and I were fascinated to learn all about our new instrument. And Barnaby was fascinated that two people who had survived this long could be so confused by just three buttons on one instrument. Luckily for Barnaby, his impending nervous breakdown was interrupted by a knock at the door. It was Mary, the leader of the Piccolos, and she was delivering Annie to us. She was very direct. She just said, Annie is going to play the sousaphone now. And Barnaby just stood there. Mary said she's not going to be able to stay in the piccolo section. And still, our leader said nothing. Mary said she's done something to her piccolo, said it will only play very, very high notes. And finally, I chimed in. I said, but isn't the piccolo supposed to play high notes? I don't see what the problem is. And no sooner had I said this, there was a rumble. There was something running around the corner of the hallway, and there came a pack of 30-odd bloodhounds and every stray dog in town barreling around the bend, bang and barking, having a heck of a time figuring out who had called them. I said, of course, we'd be happy to have her. Mary went on her way, stepped back into the hallway, where she was immediately swept onto the backs of 30-odd bang bloodhounds and every stray dog in town, rolling along on their backs as an accidental crowd surfer. I, of course, helped by closing the door. I was getting kind of loud out there. And once she left, Barnaby's trance was broken. He came to, he said, well, how did I do? Did I say anything stupid? And Annie, everything encouraged her. She said, no, you didn't have to say anything stupid. Your face, it said it all for you. And Barnaby sank down into a chair and it was clear that whatever had just happened would take precedent over our sousaphone lesson. Well, by and by, he told us that he had loved Mary since the first grade and he hoped to invite her to the winter ball, but he couldn't work up the courage to do it. And that was a shame because there was no doubt these two were made for each other. If things worked out, they'd go to the dance, they'd start dating. One day he would propose and she could become Mary Berry. And in his proposal, he would offer to make her a very merry Mary Berry if she'd marry a Berry and become Mary Berry. And their love story would be the stuff of legend. Henceforth, it would be told as a vocal warm-up at every community theater production in our town. So we pledged to our leader right then and there that we would help him find a way to ask Mary to the dance. And in that moment, a great friendship was forged between us. So for the next few weeks, Barnaby tried to whip his three new sousaphone players into shape. We marched, we played, we looked longingly at instruments that didn't cause back problems. And during our breaks, we devised a plan with Barnaby, one that would help him win the heart of Mary. When the night of the Christmas parade rolled around, we showed up on Main Street dressed in our red and green uniforms, and as expected, the whole street was alive again. There were people, there were lights. It was a feeling of Christmas all around. Now, our marching band consisted of 35 dedicated musicians. And then also Annie, Calvin, and me. So there were 38 people total, which made us the largest group in the parade. So they saved us for the end. Just behind a tractor pulling a hay wagon, uh, which was very exciting. Because normally to see a tractor pulling a hay wagon in our town, you had to step outside. Now, the parade would end right after we passed the old Palace Theater. That's where folks would gather to watch It's a Wonderful Life on the big screen. 
Now, from our talks with Barnaby, we learned that he had sat next to Mary last year for It's a Wonderful Life, and that she had cried at the scene where George and Mary are walking home, and he offers to throw a lasso around the moon and bring it down for her. After that, she told him she thought it was the most romantic scene ever in a movie. And from this, we devised our plan. You see, the last song we were going to play that night was We Wish You a Merry Christmas. And we had gotten really good at that song because it was the only song we were going to play. We would just play it over and over. And as we held the last note for the last time, just as we passed in front of the Old Palace Theater, the plan was that we'd have a banner that was going to roll down off the back of that hay wagon, transforming it into sort of a walking billboard. And it would have that line, Do you want the moon, Mary? Sign Barnaby. Annie's cousin, Skip, he made signs for a living. He did a lot of business in our town. Skip signs were beautiful, but they usually had a, a few mistakes, which meant they were dirt cheap. So we went down to Skip's sing shop and we placed a special order. Our whole plan was in place. Now back to the big night. The end of the parade is nearing. We're marching down Main Street and we're approaching the Palace Theater. We blared, we wish you a Merry Christmas ever louder until we found an approximation to that last note of the song and we let it rip. As we held that note, Barnaby was superhuman strength. He takes off his Seuss phone and he slings over to this kid, Lou, who eventually recovered, and he jumps up on the back of the wagon. He yells, observe, and he pulls a cord, and the banner unravels, and there, lit up beneath the bulbs of the palace marquee, was the message. Gold text with black outline and the most beautiful handwritten calligraphy. It said, I want to moon you, Mary. Signed, Barnaby. The parade came to a halt. Music stopped. People stared, wondering, perhaps, what would possess a person to make such a sign. But Mary just smiled, and she said, I'll take it. In celebration, Calvin, Annie, and I struck up a tune, one perfect for that exact moment. We wish you a Merry Christmas. And the whole band joined in. We sat in the theater that night all watching It's a Wonderful Life, Mary with her head on Barnaby's shoulder. It was young love watching an old movie in an ancient movie house. It was the Merry Christmas the Possum Post Marching Band had wished for. That was storyteller James Fromo. He developed that story through the West Virginia Humanities Council Folk Life Apprenticeship Program. Till next time, happy holidays and thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Sycamores, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, the Capella Bell Choir, and Bob Thompson. Special thanks to Roxy Todd for recording Jim Bartlett playing the pipe organ with an assortment of goats. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.